0: in order that they show that the theme we're going to be looking at in our main text actually is throughout the scripture. Uh, Sometimes asking the question that's answered or raising uh, the the particular doctrine a little earlier. But because of this holiday, I wanted uh, to read three texts and comment briefly on the first two and then spend whatever time is left looking at our New Testament and hopefully it'll be clear why. Uh, Our first lesson is an Old Testament lesson from the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is uh, one of those that was not carried off into captivity when Nebuchadnezzar carried the Israelites to Babylon. But he's writing to those who are in Babylon and uh, have been taken captive and they're wondering, what do we do? Do we try to work uh, a revolution? Do we try to, um, uh, should we be fighting against the Babylonians who put many of our people to death and are holding us captive? You know from Psalm 137, uh, the awful antipathy that Israel had toward Babylon. That's where they said, you know, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. My captives have demanded of me songs, of the songs of Jerusalem. How can I sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? And it even, that it ends with a rather horrifying verse that is never read at pro-life gatherings. It says, blessed is the one who dashes your baby's brains against the rocks. I mean, that's how much the Israelites, that's what they felt toward the Babylonians who had dashed their children against the rocks who had destroyed them. And yet, this is what God told the prophet to write to those that were captive in Babylon. Jeremiah 29, beginning with verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find welfare, your welfare for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets or your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams they dream, for it's a lie that they're prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And then to me, the some of the most moving words in all of the Old Testament. In fact, when I first went to Cedar Springs, the first Sunday, January of 1990, the two previous pastors of the church had each without the knowledge of the other written this verse down and had it left on my desk. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. The word of the Lord. So, sermon one. Keep it brief. Um, I love the American flag. I fly it at my home. When I come in from other countries and see that flag, it stirs my heart. Uh, There are some places around Knoxville where they have enormous, I mean, they're, you know, like, you'd expect them to be flying from the Empire State Building. And you know how a huge flag looks in a a breeze where it just, in slow motion, it stirs me. I love it. But I want to say something that an interim is saying for the sake of whoever follows me. I always wince when I walk in a church and there's a flag. And I want to tell you why. Because you and I, however much we love this country, however grateful we are for it, and I am deeply grateful for it. And I'm grateful to have served in its military and grateful to have sent a son off to war to serve. The Church of Jesus Christ is an embassy of the kingdom of God. And an embassy never flies someone else's flag. The reformers were very careful to say nothing should be seen when people walk in a church except the emblems of their salvation. The cross, the pulpit, the table, the communion font nothing else. Because those are what represent their salvation. And I only say this not because I think it's any big deal to put the flag up, but to make another point, a lot of conservative Christians today confuse the United States with the kingdom of God. And I've heard it said, this is a Christian nation and they're destroying it. Brothers and sisters, when I was in, I was arrested in Beijing, China in uh, 2010 uh, for the sake of the gospel. I was with a group of unregistered pastors doing a conference. And the man who interviewed me, uh, a member of the Public Security Bureau. As the day went on, he said, look, I, I know you're an American, and I know that all Americans are Christians and that your government supports Christianity. And I said, you have been misinformed. Uh, I said, number one, most Americans, including probably most people who sit in churches on Sunday, are not what the Bible would consider Christians, followers of Jesus and our government does not support Christianity, and I pray it never does, because that's the genius of our country, that our founders said our consciences must be free before God to worship or not worship as we see fit. Therein lies our freedom. The moment that a country becomes a Christian country, then it can start deciding what kind of Christians it accepts, and maybe Soon, it will become not a Christian country, which now persecutes Christians, because it's something else. So brothers and sisters, I love this country. I love our legacy of freedom. I'm 75 years old, but if I had to, I would be willing to fight again for its freedoms. But I have a lasting citizenship. I am not a hyphenated Christian. I am not an American Christian. When I am a Christian, when I talk about my true citizenship, When I go to God's word, I hear the Apostle Paul, who was a Roman citizen, write to the church, we are strangers and sojourners here. We are citizens of another kingdom. And in Christ, these things don't mean anything at all. Sermon one. But should we therefore despise our country? No, he says, if you're living in Babylon, if you're living in Beijing, if you're living in Moscow, If you're living in Saudi Arabia, if you are under persecution, pray for the welfare of your city. Do your best to let that city prosper and to be a faithful and good citizen because if it prospers, you will prosper. We could have gone to Romans 13 where Paul says, you know, be subject to the authorities that rule over you because God's put them there. And you may say, but has God put Putin in there? Has he put... Let me tell you, if you have ever been in a country during a revolution, you will realize that even oppressive regimes are better than anarchy. I got off a plane, one, these aren't just gonna be personal stories, but uh, I just, as I said that, I remember I got off a plane back in the mid-90s uh, during the Rwandan crisis and stepped off in Lubumbashi, Zaire. It was still Zaire then, but it wouldn't be much longer because the president had left with billions. The country was in full rebellion. I'd planned to fly in through Kinshasa, and a guy called me and said, I I saw you're flying into Kinshasa. Uh, You sounded to me like a white guy, and I said, I am. He said, well, you'll be dead within 100 yards of the airport. You've got to fly in from Joe Burke. What am I saying? Even horrible, oppressive government. Is better than anarchy and blood in the streets and everyone running around killing so be subject to those in authority unless they call on you to go against god's word that's the line that's the only line and so the second one i'll be much briefer i've made my point but here our gospel lesson is that familiar text when the pharisees are trying to trip jesus up so they think we'll get him Because everybody hates, you know, people loved him, and so they thought, how can we turn the people against him? Well, the people hate paying Rome tax. And so, we'll say, should we pay our taxes? And if he says no, then we'll turn him into the authorities. And if he says yes, then the people will turn away from him. You know the answer. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, and they sent their disciples, along with the Herodians, who were their enemies saying, teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care for anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. It's so beautiful. And they brought him a denarius, which was one day's wage. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, left him, went away. I'm sure they were like, what what do we do with this guy? And of course, the implicit thing that he was saying was not just that we should pay our taxes. But he says, don't forget whose inscription and image you were created you render coins to God, I, I mean, coins to Caesar, but render yourself made in God's image and likeness. Render yourself to God. And so we come to a text that talks about freedom wherever we live, whatever time and season we're in, whether we're living under oppression or whatever. And I realize I've used up a good bit of my time, so don't, don't worry. Of course, the great thing about being an interim is. What are they going to do if I, no I I won't, I won't abuse it. This is Galatians chapter 5 and you probably know that Christians in the West uh, going back to the Reformation have called the book of Galatians the Magna Carta, another great freedom document, the Magna Carta of Christian freedom. Chapter 5 Paul says beginning with verse 1, for freedom. Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ. You, who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves... Eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And then down to verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The Word of the Lord. Okay, you all, I'm sure, have studied Galatians many times. You know that it's sort of a little Romans, it's uh, one of the earliest letters of Paul that we have, and it lays out the gospel so very beautifully. He summarizes. Uh, the relationship to what the law does to us with its conviction back in chapter 2 where he says, I through the law died to the law that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So he's describing life in Christ. And he comes to this place where he's specifically addressing the reason that he wrote the letter, which is that certain teachers had come in claiming to be from James in Jerusalem and were saying that in order to embrace Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, you had to become Jewish. You had to proselytize, and you had to accept circumcision and kosher dietary laws, and you had to live as a Jew in order to be a member of this new Christian society. And Paul is adamantly resisting that and saying, absolutely not. That is to fall back under the yoke of that which was preparing us for the good news of the gospel and which even under the old covenant could not save us. As he said in Romans 4, as he says several times in this letter, Abraham was accepted by God. Go back to Genesis 15, where it's declared that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham was justified by grace through faith in Christ. Two chapters before we read that God gave him the mark of circumcision. So Paul's argument was always, Abraham was righteous through faith by God's grace. Circumcision came later and was a sign of the covenant, but it doesn't save. These rules and regulations cannot save you. He's not saying that if you get circumcised, you lose your salvation. After all, later when he would take Timothy with him, Timothy had, uh, I think it was a Jewish mother, but a Gentile dad. And so because he was going with Paul to the synagogues, Paul said, "Let's, let's get you circumcised so that it's not a scandal to Jewish people when you come in and minister. But his point is, he said, you who would be justified by keeping the law. So, this is what he's addressing. And what I want to try to picture in the few minutes we have left is this journey of faith, this path that God has called us to be on. Because there is a ditch to the left that many Christians thought, your left would be here, ditch to your left here, which... Uh, a lot of Christians fall into. It's the ditch of the law where you once again get into legalism. I grew up in that. We, My dad was a great Baptist preacher, but and he declared justification by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, but the conversation around the table would often be, I don't know if he knows the Lord, he's a smoker, or I don't know if he really knows the, you know, they go to movies. They do, it's, it's, you know, A legalistic group of rules that if you don't keep these, you're suspect. You're justified in man's sight by keeping these rules. And that's the ditch on one side of the road. The ditch on the other side of the road is the ditch of the flesh, as Paul says. He addresses in the opening verses of chapter 5 that we read, he declares you're free, for freedom Christ has set you free. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. And then verses 2 through 6 He is addressing the ditch on the side of the law, legalism. That in Christ Jesus, you and I have been set free. And then in the final verses, verses 13 through 15, he addresses the ditch on the other side, the ditch of the flesh. And that in Christ Jesus, we have been set free as well from bondage to the flesh in our relations with one another. So that's where I'm trying to go. And I've got 15, no, less, okay, very fast. Um, on, the, on the legal side, think about that ditch, but in addressing it, he talks about another problem up on the road, and that's that we've got a past. We've already made some of the journey. And many of us find ourselves still bound by things back there. Shame, guilt, mistakes, broken relations, sin that we'd give anything to be able to go back and undo. Others of us live with fear of what's out before us, our future, because we know that not only joy and beauty and pleasure awaits, but also great heartache. I'm at that age now where I think it's just, if not every week, certainly every month someone close to me in family or in friendship. Uh, One of the great joys of moving here personally for me was renewing a deep friendship with an old friend of mine that went back over 50 years to when I was stationed at Bethesda Naval Hospital. And he's a marvelous artist who lived in Pasadena and he has paintings in Main Street Gallery here in town in DC and galleries. just a wonderful artist and love the guy. And we were supposed to have dinner and his daughter called me Thursday and said, just wanted you to know that dad died today. And I thought, anyone else, Lord? You know, just, they're dropping like flies around me. Uh, That's in our future. And the older we get, the more we know it, the more we realize that things will happen to the people we most love. We will see children, we will see grandchildren, we will see Dear friends, face awful things, we ourselves. We know that nobody makes it out of life alive, I mean, unless, you know, unless we don't see the truck coming that hits us, um, you know, we're all going to face it. And if it is a truck that hits us, as Jack Gilbert said in that wonderful sermon brief or or poem, Brief for the Defense, you can thank God your death had magnitude. Um, So how does he address it? in this way. Did you notice in the first verses we read from chapter 5, those three beautiful markers that should always stand out almost shining and glittering off the page to us whenever we're reading, particularly Paul's letters, because he weaves them in so many times. He speaks of faith, hope, and love. Did you notice that? He says in verse 5, chapter 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love." Quickly, what's he doing here? He's telling us that we are totally at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That as he said earlier, we have been crucified with Christ. We are now united with Christ. Everything that he has is ours. I love that beautiful expression of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, in the divine juggling of the books, God puts all of my sin on Jesus and all of his righteousness on me. So he's saying that's how you see yourself. So you're not for a moment going to go back and dig up your own pathetic attempts to try to please God through keeping the law perfectly, scrupulously. Because that's not the basis of our peace with God, nor is it the way that we deal with the past. What does faith do? Faith always looks back and sees what God has done for us. It sees his promises, it claims them, it sees what he has done for us in Christ, that our sin, the sacrifice for our sin has been made. It is finished, it is done. The promises of the Old Testament, the promise of Psalm 103, where the Lord says, I will put your sins as far away as the east is from the west and remember them no more. When he says he will put them in the depth of the sea, it's a picture of God saying, I'm done with your past. Why do you keep turning around and obsessing over it? It is over. Whatever you can do to reconcile, do. Whatever you can do to amend, do. And then set your face forward and don't look back anymore. The law will not help you. And he looks forward in hope. Why should I not be afraid? Because of what the Lord has promised. He kept his promises in the past. He will keep them in the future. And what he has promised is not pie in the sky when you die. It is not the the dream of the Greek mystery religions or of Greek philosophy or of most religions of getting free of this broken world and free of my body and, being able to, you know, just the, the idea of heaven—I uh, I probably told you before. My, my favorite um, Far Side cartoon is that I—that it's the there's an escalator going up and one going down, passing each other. The people going up are all in white, and at the top, an angel is standing there and says, "Welcome to heaven. Here's your harp." And the people on the other side are going down, dressed in black, looking grim. And at the bottom, there's a demon saying, welcome to hell, here's your accordion. I mean, we, we all have a kind of a, a sorry, penny accordionists here. Um, blame Larson, it's not my idea. But we have to resist that idea that even some of our hymnody plays into, which is this idea that this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Well, in one sense, that's true. The world in its brokenness, in its rebellion, in its bondage to the flesh. That's all going to pass away. But we are not going to float on clouds playing harps. We are going to be raised up from the dead in glorified bodies like that of Jesus. And the new heaven and the new earth, the new cosmos is our destiny when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. God put us in a garden. Man wanted a city, so he built Babel. God said, you want a city? I'll give you a city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband, and God makes his home with us, heaven on earth. That's the picture of our destiny. That's our hope. And so, as any of you who have uh, followed some of the tributes to Tim Keller uh, have noticed, they've frequently been playing a little, one of his last little videos, where he was clearly dying, but he was saying, Kathy and I have been talking a lot about the fact that if Christ is raised from the dead and his promises are true, and he said, I'm incapable of not believing that, then we have nothing to be afraid of ever, ever. We don't need to fear the future. We don't need to obsess over the past. We don't need to fear the future because he's cared for it. What does that do? That frees me to live in this present moment in love. The call to love. Paul says the only thing that matters is faith working itself out through love and so that's how we're to live. I am um, really trying to be sensitive to time or give you the impression that I am. Um, I usually don't read things but I was thinking yesterday about this and I realized that I wrote something while my wife was dying. I cared for her for three years. She didn't want anybody else in there said, you can do this. You were a corpsman, so, um, because they kept saying she can't last another week. So she thought she was asking for another week, but it went on three years. And first year was sort of precious. The last two were getting on my nerves a little, and um, I don't, not as much as on hers. Poor girl. Um, she wanted to go be with Jesus. And in the midst of it, somebody said, what are you learning? And I thought, this is a time to write something to my children and grandchildren of what I'm learning now. So forgive me for reading, but this is what I wrote, my family. My dear children and grandchildren, I've been thinking about what I might say to you from the perspective of old age that I've not said to you in the past. You've heard me call you across the years to faith and faithfulness, to heed Solomon's advice to fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. My advice to you here is a bit different, but not at all contradictory. It's simply a lesson my present circumstances are teaching me about the context in which we are called to love God and love others, a lesson I wish that I had understood and embraced when I was young. So you young people, this is for you. Here it is. The present moment is all we ever have. It's so simple as to sound silly and obvious, but I assure you that the failure to understand and embrace it causes most people to miss out on most of their life. It is biblical wisdom, for sure, and also at the heart of commonly held wisdom of the world, known by all, but embraced by few, from the call, this is the day that the Lord has made, to Jesus' advice, do not be anxious about tomorrow, sufficient for the day is its own trouble, and its own joy, I would be bold to add, and even to the call to mindfulness, summarized in wise words, be here now, It is a call to living joyfully and fully. You may find yourself tempted to look back nostalgically on some past events and wish you could go back and experience them again. Simply give thanks for them and let them drift away on the stream of time. They are gone forever. They've helped mold you and shape you, but they are no more. You may also look back on things that you regret, that you wish you'd done differently, that you wish you could somehow amend, simply learn from them. Give thanks for forgiveness and grace, and let those memories also drift away on the stream. The Lord has promised to remember them no more, and it is good that you let them go as well. Guilt and shame for confessed past sins do for confessed past sins, failures, and mistakes, do nothing good for anyone, and simply hold you back bound to past brokenness. You may also find yourself looking to the future as in one sense you must do in making plans and setting goals. However, when the future arrives, it is seldom what we thought it would be. Boy, isn't that true. Life changes everything in unexpected ways. And a wise person soon discovers that our character is shaped by how we respond to life more than by our efforts to control it. And here's the danger. If we think that our true life is out there in the future, when we've achieved certain things, reached a certain age or success or independence, then we merely design a fantasy life that never actually comes. It is always future, never present because things never quite turn out as we thought, and even the things we finally get or achieve quickly lose their luster just to be replaced by new dreams that take us away from the only life we ever have, namely this present moment now. I'm almost done. So embrace this present moment with gratitude and take note of everyone and everything around you. The love of family and friends, the grace of God that has so gifted each of you with intelligence and ability to live and love well. It doesn't get better than this, nor does it get worse. Wherever you go, whoever you become, it will always be the same. You standing before God and other people whom God loves and has invited you to love. We can do that with joy and gratitude always and everywhere. if the big if, we are fully present to ourselves and those with us, not lost in a remembered past or an imagined future. I love you each with all my heart, Papa. This is what I want to say to you, whom I have come to love this past year. All you and I have is now. We never wake up and say, it's finally tomorrow. No, it's always today and God meets us here, and just to close it, he calls us to stay out of the ditch of legalism, but he says, he goes on to say, don't use your freedom as an excuse for the flesh. There's a movement that's been been too characterized in our reform circles of antinomianism, anti-law, of saying we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Don't talk to me about how I'm living. It makes no difference. Don't get me looking at myself. I want to look at Jesus. Well, where is Jesus? On the steeple? Paul says, writing to the Corinthians church in 2 Corinthians, let a man examine himself, or do you not know that Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test? So he's saying it matters, and he goes on to say, you know, the fruit of the spirit, the the deeds of the flesh are obvious. Some of them are the kinds of things we think of, sexual immorality and all of that, but it's also Greed and envy and anger and contention. It's all those inner sins of the heart and the mind. Idolatry. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then he says this. There's no law against any of that. And so he ends, I didn't read it again, but in verse 14 and 15, or 13, 14, 15, he says, don't give yourself over to the flesh. Don't be be in bondage there, but instead live in love because Christ has given you the ability to serve one another. It's that kind of love, a love that serves, a love that gives itself. And then finally he says, Love is the fulfillment of the law. Therefore, we've been set free in Christ to completely keep the law. How can I keep the law, broken as I am? By loving. When we love others well, we are living what Christ intended us to live. When we show compassion and mercy to those whom we would never show compassion and mercy unless Christ were in us, then we're fulfilling the law. And he says, just walk in the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Okay, I'm done. If you're sorry for your sins, if you've been baptized into the church of Jesus Christ, I invite you to come to this meal that that represents, displays, and even feasts us on the benefits of Christ's sacrifice. Come not because you're good, but because you're in need of God's goodness and grace. Come because you love the Lord a little and you long to love him more. Come because he loves you and gave his life for you.